First John. And as normal, let's look at kind of the who, the, the when, the what, all these things. Of course, it's not hard to know who wrote the book of First John, even though John doesn't write really with any kind of similar greeting as most of the epistles do. Most of the apostles were, uh, or writers in the New Testament would specify who it was that's writing, give a little greeting. John just jumps right into it, right? So we don't see him mentioning his name, but it's widely been agreed that John the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, is indeed the, the writer of the gospel of John. He's also the one that wrote, uh, sorry, first John, the epistle of John. He's also the one that wrote the gospel of John, and he's also the one that wrote the book of Revelation. Now, John became known as the disciple of love, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, of course, we only read that in the gospel that he wrote. So is this a little bit of showmanship by John? Is this John trying to upstage the rest of the apostles? Is this John breaking? I don't think that's the case at all. I think John really began to understand and know that he was somebody that was loved by Jesus. And I think that's something that we all should know. As John spent time with Jesus, he began to see and know so clearly that Jesus just loved him. As did Jesus love everybody. And that's something we should be able to state for ourselves. I'm so-and-so, the one that Jesus loved. Because we're loved by God. We're, we're, we're blessed in the beloved in Jesus Christ who, who loves us, who died for us, who demonstrated that love for us. I mean, we're loved. What a blessing that is to know. And so John understood this way of love. He talks a lot about this love. But it wasn't always this way for John. See, this wasn't always the way that John just kind of conducted his life. When John was called by Jesus, he was probably the youngest of the disciples at the time, perhaps even just in his late teens. And he and his brother James, remember, were given the nicknames of Sons of Thunder. Isn't that great? Why so? Because they were ready to call down fire upon a city that had rejected Jesus. I mean, they just had this kind of anger almost like they need some anger management they were like the first wwe tag team champions these two james and john were just ready to rumble you know and 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 take matters into their own hands and jesus of course had to direct them and and lead them but remember jesus simply called them to what to be with them when jesus called us to something said just come and, and be with me and and learn of me And we see that happening as these disciples now began to see and know the love of Jesus. And they began to be transformed and changed by that love of Jesus. So much so that John could say, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think that's so wonderful. It's something that we should all be confident and comfortable in saying that I am that disciple loved by Jesus. How wonderful that is to know that. Now, historians tell us that John... At about 100 years of age, he lived longer than all the other apostles. And at about 100 years of age, John was taken from church to church throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And people would gather around. After all, he's the last remaining disciple there. They're thinking, man, this is awesome. We get to hear from a living witness who had spent time with Jesus, as many of these people this time didn't have that fortunate blessing of, of having. They're able to hear from John. What was it like? And yet, as John would be brought in, as, as crowds would begin to gather, knowing that he was there in town, they would just call out to John, John, share something with us, tell us something. And what historians tell us is that what John would oftentimes just repeatedly say is simply this, my little children, love one another. Love 
one another. It was the love of God that impacted John so greatly. It was the love of Jesus that John knew would truly bring about a, a revolution in the world. After all, Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another, John 13, verse 35. This would be the single most greatest example or demonstration of those who are truly followers of Jesus. Are we walking in that love? Are we spending time just to be with Jesus and learn of his love and know his love and demonstrate that love? I pray that we are. Because John, that began to just be such a characteristic in the life of John, right through to his old age. He knew that was of utmost importance. So we see who the writer is. It's John, the disciple. Then we see and look at when was it written. Now, again, unlike all the other apostles, John was spared a martyr's death. But it wasn't for lack of trying. Now, we've been talking about Nero, the Roman emperor, in our study through Peter and his epistles. And Nero was um, bringing on quite a persecution against the church. But then after Nero came some other emperors. And, and Domitian was the emperor um, in power at the time of, uh, of John's writing here. And Domitian, or just around this time, And Domitian just continued on this trend of heavy persecution against the church. He had sought to have John boiled in oil and tried to kill him. And yet John survived. People that witnessed it were in awe at this miracle that had happened. And so it wasn't for lack of trying that John, you know, was trying to be executed by some of these uh, powers that be. But Domitian, since John didn't, Uh, Since John survived this boiling in oil, he had John banished to the island of Patmos. Sometime around 94 AD, it's there that John wrote the book of Revelation, as many of you I'm sure would know. And so after Domitian's death, John was freed, and it's believed he ended his years back in Ephesus, where he had once pastored there. Now, the exact timing of the writing of these epistles is greatly debated. Some believe it, it was written before he wrote Revelation, before he was banished to Patmos. Some believe that John may have written these three epistles after he had returned from Patmos and just before his death that he had written these epistles. Uh, It's hard to say. So whether it was before, it would have been around 85 to 95 AD. If it was sometime after his his, um, banishment to Patmos, it would have been around 96 to 97. If it's that case, then 3 John would be the last of the uh, canonical books to be written. So it's hard to say exactly when it's written. They both have merit as to which view you hold. It doesn't ultimately matter. But what we do know is that there was the beginning of this heresy creeping into the church in the later part of the first century. And John would be called upon to address these false teachings and remind the church to continue to abide in Jesus. These epistles are being written with that in mind. That leads us to a reason for why this epistle is written. And again, like I said, it's to encourage believers to continue on in this true fellowship and relationship with Jesus and to know that he ultimately is our life. Because John's combating this heresy that's creeping in the church which became known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism, again, we talked about this just on Sunday, I believe it was, is from the word gnosis, which means to know. So it's this idea that the Gnostics were the people in the know who considered themselves the spiritual elite. According to them, according to the Gnostics, it was by knowledge and not faith that you would 
kind of grow spiritually and be regenerated. Faith was suited only to the rude masses, kind of the animal men, they would say. Gnostics held the basic doctrine that matter, whether it be physical or or created matter, was evil and that only the spirit was good. They reasoned that God could not then have been involved in creation since it involved bringing matter together and, and that he was perfect, he couldn't touch matter. It was intrinsically evil. So God had no part to play in creation. Therefore, the world, they would say, came into being through a complicated process as God put forth thousands of emanations or lesser gods, each of which was a little more distant from him so that finally there was an emanation, a little God, so distant from God that it could have then created all that we see around us. Of course, this little or lesser God of creation was so far removed from God that it was ultimately evil as well in their view, in the Gnostic mindset. That reasoning led to the belief that Jesus Christ, if he was really the son of God, could not have taken on a human body because that would have been evil. This delusion spawned the Gnostic lie that Jesus was only this ghost-like phantom that walked on the earth. To the Gnostics, Christ was not creator. The incarnation was not real. And Christ wasn't enough this heresy claimed that god was so far removed from us even that we need now to have the secret knowledge just to separate ourselves from the flesh and to be able to kind of reach god so the gnostics built this system by which one could begin with christ and and work their way up through these series of emanations to eventually work to god now this all came about again through this sort of secret knowledge and understanding that they had that that kind of puffed them up, brought them to this level of spiritual elitism, but it also brought two contradictory thoughts within this kind of teaching and understanding. Two groups that broke apart from this. First of all, there was a group that practiced strict discipline of the things of the flesh, and that was known as asceticism. Asceticism, I can't even say that right. Asceticism, which meant that you would just cut yourself off from all things that were of the flesh. You denied the flesh. You would have nothing to do with it. But then there was also the other camp then that ran in a, in a contradictory view that said, since matter is evil, but the spirit is good, well, you could indulge the flesh and it didn't really matter because it was, it, was, it was evil as flesh. It, it had no bearing on your spiritual good. So if you indulge the flesh, it was separate from that of the spirit. And so it brought in this camp of licentiousness that you just kind of did whatever you wanted to. Hedonism, the, the, the likes. So these two different views that sprung up out of, uh, out of Gnosticism that was at work kind of in this day. And you see this happening a lot in the Gospels that, or, or in the writings in the New Testament here uh, regarding these two things. Now, we look at also to whom it was written. And it's written to these churches in Asia Minor. John had addressed seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, these churches of Asia Minor, John had spent a lot of time in Ephesus where he had pastored there. And so it's with this in mind that he's writing to these churches that he had spent time with and ministered to. Now, the outline that we're going to be looking at here, it's interesting because 
this epistle has been written kind of in a very sporadic way, unlike a lot of other epistles where you see a real general kind of flow taking place. John doesn't really do that. In fact, he kind of bounces around between different subjects and ideas and he'll talk about something and then get into something else and then he'll circle back to this other area that he once talked about and kind of review that and add to it. And so it bounces around. It kind of goes all over the place. It's hard to really outline things, but I think we've got a pretty good general outline here that we can look at in chapters 1 and 2. We see knowing the light of God. Chapters 3 and 4, knowing the love from God. Chapter 5, knowing the life in God. And that's it, is that this is something that we can know. This isn't some Gnostic heresy where people are being taught, you know what, you need to attain to a secret, higher up kind of level of knowledge. No, John is saying you can know God. And you can know the light of God, the love of God, and the life in God. And you can know it intimately, know Him personally. He's not so far removed from you. He's here to be in relationship with you. And that's what John is addressing. Now, John is going to make very clear for us here exactly some areas that he wants to address because he's going to say multiple times, I've written because this, or I write these things to you because this. And so we're going to see a number of them and we're going to, we're going to kind of use these as sort of our, our jumping points to go through the, the epistle here in 1 John to look at what John is addressing, why he's addressing it, and we're going to kind of move through this epistle based on those five reasons that we see John writing this this letter. So it says here in the first verse of chapter 1, I hope you're there with me, we read this, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So first reason of writing is right there in First John 1, 3. That which we've seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, remember, because of this heresy that's being spread around, these very truths that John is highlighting here in these opening verses were being attacked. And John is looking to kind of come and, and, and hit this heresy right between the eyes and just sort of squash it right away here. Because the very thought of knowing God or having fellowship with God were beginning to be questioned or challenged. Now remember, John is writing this to a generation that's perhaps, perhaps about 60 years removed from the time of Jesus. And it's easy in that kind of length of time for the fires to fade, for passion to peter out, for devotion to dwindle. But John writes to say, that fellowship that he enjoyed with Jesus is every bit as fresh as it was when he was with Jesus, when he saw him personally, when he, when he walked with him, when he was physically with him. And John wants to declare that his, that his readers may have fellowship with him as well and with one another. And that this fellowship ultimately centers around our fellowship with the Godhead. You see, God's not distant. God's not withdrawn himself because... 
we're evil and he's not. We're flesh and he's not. God hasn't withdrawn himself. Jesus is not some ghost that has vanished away. No, they're real and, and have opened the way for us to have fellowship with them and with one another. That's amazing, my friends. God has provided a way for us to be in fellowship with him. Now, because of that false teaching that was spreading around and people began to make up things about the incarnation of Christ, they said things like, Jesus was just this spirit. He couldn't take on flesh because it was evil. And so he just walked around kind of like as a spirit when you would walk on the beach with him. Only your footprints would be seen. There were no footprints from Jesus because he wasn't a physical being. They would, they would kind of spread and, and, and pass on these kinds of lies and false teachings. But like I said, John comes right out of the gates here and, and seeking to, to squash these views that were so erroneous and so wrong. Because John says there in those opening verses, listen, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We've seen them. The life was manifested and we have seen, we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life. John says, listen, we've not only seen, we've, we've touched, we've handled. He is flesh and blood. It's unmistakable. We've witnessed that. John is there to show these false teachers that he knows otherwise because he's experienced that himself. And, and you don't need some secret knowledge or hidden program to try and reach God. You just need to put your trust in Jesus. He's the life. And when you've accepted his life, then you get to enjoy fellowship with him. He invites you in. Now, one of the problems arising from Gnosticism was that spiritual pride and elitism that began to crop up in people. Christian fellowship was being damaged by these spiritual elite looking down with contempt on those that didn't hold the same views as they had. Or they didn't, or, or they viewed others as not having that special knowledge that they had. Well, John writes to refute this attitude and thinking. He speaks about love more than anything else in this epistle using that word or the form of it 46 times in these five chapters. Love. And John wants his readers to know that our fellowship centers around Jesus. It, it, it is taking place because of love and through love. And because this fellowship centers around Jesus, it brings us all together on common ground and level footing. It's important that we remember that. That true Christian fellowship is about our fellowship in Jesus. See, going to Tim Hortons for coffee and donuts after a a church service might be nice and all. I'm never against that. But that doesn't constitute true Christian fellowship. You see, fellowship, as the Bible speaks of, is more about partnership and participation together. It's being in common together. In other words, we're actively carrying out the work of Christ together. And that can be in service, or in encouraging people, instructing, in praying together. But fellowship happens when we're engaged in this life together, where we're seeking to carry out the work of Christ together. That's true fellowship. And that's what John is speaking of here. John goes on to talk about this fellowship even more in in verse 6. He says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Remember how many of these false teachers were living. They thought that they could separate themselves from the flesh and live either apart from sin or live in their sin without any repercussions because it was so separate, the flesh and the spirit. So if some are walking in darkness, then they're not really in the truth, John says. You can't have it both ways. If some claim to be without sin, then they're lying and the truth is not really in them, as John says here. See, if we're truly walking in fellowship with God and with one another, then we're going to be open and honest. We're going to be true about what's going on, what we're dealing with. We're going to be true about our sin. And we also understand and know that we can come to a Savior who isn't distant, but has provided for us all that we need because it says that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin there in verse 7. So John says, listen, you don't have to act like you're free from sin. Just come to the Savior who cleanses us from this sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great promise that is for us. So, continuing on here, our second reason now that we see John writing this, as he makes very clear, is there in verse 4 of chapter 1. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So we just talked about fellowship. We have fellowship with Jesus and our fellowship is with one another. There's a blessing that takes place as we partner and participate together in the work of Christ. And we do so, so that our joy may be full. Isn't that great to have joy? Aren't you thankful for joy? And I pray and trust that your joy meter is just overflowing. That is bubbling over. Because the result of being in fellowship with God and in communion with one another is, is joy and joy to the full. That's what John says. Not just that you'd have joy, but that you'd have joy to the full. Now, when I'm not joyful, when things are bugging me, when maybe I'm getting irritated, I need a question to ask, have I been experiencing fellowship with God? Have I been in fellowship with God? Because these are directly linked together. If I've been in fellowship with God, then I'm going to be experiencing a whole lot more joy. Joy that isn't going to get robbed by the circumstances, by the situations, by, by frustrations or irritations. Joy doesn't get robbed by those things when I've been spending time with God, being in fellowship with Him. Because when we truly fellowship with God, we see His love, His care, His grace. I don't know why I'm entitled to that, but I am by His grace. I receive it, I enjoy it, and it brings me great joy. See, many are walking through this life wondering why they're here when it's so clear we exist to have a relationship with God. That's the, the, the greatest thing that people need to understand and realize that you've been created to enjoy a relationship with God. And if you're not walking in a relationship with God, then something is greatly missing and absent from your life that's not going to provide the joy that you might be looking for. Jesus said in John 15, 11, that as we abide in him, then our joy is made full. See, that's the secret to enjoying life. And joy is something that goes beyond just being happy. There's a lot of people that are looking just to be happy. And they're finding happiness in things here and there, but it's a happiness that doesn't last. 
See, joy is internal, whereas happiness is external. It's, happiness is based on your circumstances, the things that you might do. But joy is not an emotion that comes and goes. People can be happy one minute, sad the next. Happiness isn't lasting, but joy is. Because it's not dependent on your emotions or circumstances. It's found in the reality of Jesus Christ. And as we abide in him and experience that fellowship, then our joy becomes full. That's rich, my friends. And John is writing this for that very reason that your joy may be full. What's the third reason John is writing? Well, we see the third reason John is writing is found in 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. Read that with me. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John begins right away with that interesting phrase, my little children. Some may think that's kind of condescending. He's just saying, oh, you, you bunch of little wee ones. Just try to stay out of trouble. Just listen to me. Now, that's not John talking down to them. This is a very warm and loving description that John is giving. It's a term of endearment. John used that term little children nine times in this epistle, just five times in this chapter alone. He's writing out of, again, love and care for these people. It's the kind of term that a, a grandparent would use for their grandchildren. Very loving and affectionate. And we see that third reason that John is writing is that they might not sin. Though that seems like such a, a far-fetched idea, right? That should always be our goal, isn't it? That we may not sin, that we may not be engaged in sin, active in sin, being pulled along by sin. We should never look at our lives and think, oh, it's a lost cause. There's no way I can do that. Forget it. It's too hard. No. Jesus died on a cross to not just forgive you, but to provide the strength and the power you need to be overcomers and to live a life victorious over sin. That should be our goal, my friends. God doesn't condone sin in any way, and neither should we. We shouldn't excuse it. We shouldn't think, well, I'm just human. We should never give allowance for sin. And John is writing these things that we may not sin. But we understand the reality. We're clothed in, in this tainted humanity. And there's a battle that's continually waging. And the Lord knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. So... John, as he's led by the Lord, sets out for us the help and provision we have if we do sin. And he says there that we have an advocate in verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father. The, the, that word advocate in the Greek is the word parakletos, which means to come alongside. To come alongside. The word was used in the Gospel of John when Jesus spoke of sending the Holy Spirit there in John 14. So here's the situation. When you transgressed or you sinned, you're in broken fellowship with God. That's the, the reality and the ramifications of our sin. That's why we should never try to excuse sin, take sin lightly, because when we sin, our relationship with God is marred. It's, it's broken. It doesn't mean our salvation is gone. No, but our, our relationship with God is hindered. But you see, Jesus, our advocate, stands on our behalf to plead our case before the Father. He's with the Father pleading our case, pleading our defense. Have you ever had to go to 
a court of law, stand before a judge and plead your case. Anybody ever had to do that before? I hope not many of you, but uh, I, I did that early on in my life when I had received, a, you know, one or five too many speeding tickets. And uh, I, I decided I'm going to take it to court and see if I was told if the cop doesn't show up, you won't have to pay anything. You'll get all, you know, the points and the, everything taken off your record. I'm like, man, that's, it's like a 50-50. I got to give that a try. And so I did. I went to court and the cop didn't show up. Got off. It was great. And then I got another spinning ticket. Tried it again. Cop didn't show up. Wonderful. This is going better than I thought. Sadly, not learning from my mistakes, got another spinning ticket. I went to court and this time the cop showed up. And the judge just began to lay a strip off of me and let me know, like, what are you doing? You've had, you've had uh, speeding infractions after speeding infractions, and you think you're going to come in here and try to... And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. I wished at that moment I had somebody pleading my case. Because I was just a young buck. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have to do anything before. And now I'm, like, just getting, like, hammered. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I would have loved somebody to plead my case. And yet... Here we see Jesus, who is in heaven, who's standing up for us when we sin, when we stumble. And, and I'm sure many people are going, oh my goodness, look at that person once again doing that. And yet Jesus is saying, Father, it's okay. I, I, I have died for him. He is covered under the blood of Jesus here. He's, he's forgiven. He's with me. He's clothed in my righteousness now. And I'm so thankful for the work of Jesus, who is on our side and, and he is fighting for us and he's pleading for us. And this is so important to have an advocate because the Bible says that we have an accuser as well. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Do you see that? We had an accuser that was standing before God day and night accusing us. And so that's why we have an advocate. Because as much as the devil might want to come before God and say, can you really help this person? Are you really going to save this guy? Are you really going to bring him to heaven? Because look at what he's doing. He doesn't deserve it. And yet Jesus is there saying, it's okay. It's with me. I've paid the penalty for him. I paid the price. He's with me. He's clothed in my righteousness. Jesus is our like great defense lawyer who's standing on our behalf and upholding us. And we're so thankful for that. I've, I've heard it broken down this way when we see that. It says, um, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I, I've heard it broken down this way where Jesus highlights his humanity and his understanding for us. The term Christ highlights his messianic office, therefore his qualifications to help. And then the righteous emphasizes his ability to approach God on our behalf and allowing us to approach God on behalf of Christ. He's our righteousness. And it says he himself is the propitiation for our sins in verse 2. That's amazing. It's the Greek word hilasmos, propitiation. It means to appease. And the verb of this word can have a few meanings, one of which is to perform some deed by which the taint of guilt can be removed. We're stained by sin and we're in need of disinfecting. Now in Romans, 
Paul also uses this word propitiation and he ties it in with the mercy seat that sat in the, uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple. And so in other words, we're finding this propitiation to kind of be like our mercy seat, the place that we can meet with God, the place that we have provision for our sins, cleansing for our sins by which we can come in and experience the presence of God. There's only one place to find mercy today. It's, it's not in a lid, on an Ark of a Covenant. It's found in our Lord. Jesus is our place of mercy. In Him, God's justice and mercy is reconciled. And Jesus' death not only expiated, expiated, sorry, expiated, which is canceled, dismissed, uh, waived. He not only expiated our sins, but it provided cleansing from all its defilement. And it satisfied God's wrath against sin with an acceptable offering. How wonderful that is. Now, John lays out some tests before we move on to reason number four of why John is writing this. John lays out some tests here now to know if you are truly in Christ. Because some of these false teachers may have claimed to kind of have it all together. They've obtained a superior knowledge, but they certainly weren't passing the test. Well, what's the test? Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this, we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So here's John echoing the very words that Jesus shared many times with his disciples. John 14 verse 21 saying, oh, I did have that slide up there, sorry, I didn't put that up there. Let me bring it back just in case that's what we already highlighted there. With Jesus Christ the righteous, those names broken down. But John uh, 14 verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the test for any Christian, right? To keep his word. Because keeping his word is not a burden or a chore. It's how we remain in the love of God. It's how we experience that true fellowship with God and how we know the love of God. That's what keeps us walking in the assurance of salvation, knowing that we're in him. So this passage now, in chapter 2 and then verse 12 to 14, interesting passage. Also, John indicating, you know, why he's writing these things. But in a, in a general way, he goes over three kind of categories uh, of people. Children, young people, and fathers, right? And, and what he's doing is he's showing these kind of stages of growth here. He's, he's saying there, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. Verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. And so he repeats again some instruction of why he's writing to these different areas. But the desire here, the idea is that they would be continuing on in spiritual growth. And growing in their faith. And no longer walking as little children, but more as, you know, 
young people and then moving on into that parent stage where they're growing, just like we've seen recently that stages of growth here. And John is writing that they might grow in these things here. Let's move on to um, the fourth reason that John is writing here. And the fourth reason is found in 1 John 2, verse 26. And it says there, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. And so again, that's really been a, a big thrust of this letter here is to combat the heresies that were creeping in to the early church. John wants to wake up his readers to the tactics of the enemy and from teaching that runs contrary to God's word. And, and this comes from those who, as John says, try to deceive you. Now, think about that, deception. Deception is that which really kind of seduces you. It's, it's sly, it's subtle, it's not obvious, right? And think about the enemy's tactics because the enemy doesn't come in with something that's so obviously false and says hey come and follow this right come and have some of this but yet you look at it and you go no that is so contrary to god's word no the enemy doesn't work that way he's going to come in with something very subtle in fact a lot of false teaching has some truth in it in fact you can look at it and go well there's aspects of the word of god but then there's also things that are completely contrary to god's word that contradicts god's word it's very subtle, you see, and it's meant to deceive. It's meant to suck you in, to make you think, this is legit, this is good, this seems to work. But its purpose is deception. And the enemy's purpose is to deceive you and to drag you down and to lead you away from God. That's his only purpose. And we have to be so careful in these days that we live to recognize that just because something might sound true, we need to really investigate, look at, and be discerning and go, is this fully true? It's like the old illustration that I know you've heard a thousand times about if a mom was to go out and make some brownies, you know, and she took maybe one part of that brownie mixed in a little bit of, you know, dog doo-doo from the yard, Sort of those brownies said, hey, listen, made a great batch of brownies, but I, um, I put a little bit of dog, it's just a little bit, it's not much. You're going to sit there and go, I'm not touching those brownies, I'm not having any of it, because I don't know, you know where that is, what's been affected by it, I'm not going to touch it. And it's that way with deception so often, with, with um, false teaching. It might be 80% true, but the 20% of it is enough to go, I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. So John wants his readers to be aware that these false teachings might sound legit. But as soon as you add something deceptively that contradicts the word of God, you've got a wrong teaching. So be on guard and stay away from it. Now chapters 3 and 4 give us some just great um, insights, teachings, instructions. Our, our fifth reason for John writing this is in chapter 5. I said we're going to focus on those five reasons that John is writing this. So uh, we're not going to jump to chapter 5. Let me highlight a few things from chapters 3 and 4 that I think are just so wonderful and awesome. Because remember in chapter 1 and 2, we're dealing with knowing the light of God. And so we're seeing the, the light of God, the truth of God. Chapters 3 and 4 detail knowing the love of God. 
And we see that so clearly here in these chapters. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John is just overwhelmed when he thinks about this great love of God. Behold, amazing. This is incredible to to just think about the kind of love that's been shown to us and bestowed upon us. A love that would invite us in to be children of God. You know what kind of risks God is taking? Adopting us as children, (laughs) right? Think about it. Yet that's the kind of love that drives us to say, I want to be in relationship with these people. I want to invite them in. That's an incredible kind of love that's been shown and demonstrated to us. And with that comes a great hope and inheritance. The fact that John says, and we're going to see him one day. He's coming back. And when we see him, then we're going to be made like him. Listen, these Gnostics were saying, you want to be more like God? Well, you need to attain to this secret knowledge. You need to grow and, and rise up in this sort of separation from the flesh and in this knowledge that you have. It's not faith, knowledge. But John says, man, there's coming a day when I'm just going to look at Jesus and I'm going to be made like him. When he's going to just completely radically alter our makeup and we're going to be made new. Well, that's happened spiritually, don't get me wrong. We're new creations in him right now. But there's coming a day when we're going to see him and we're going to be made like him for we shall see him as he is. Therefore, John says, let this be a motivating truth for you. Let this be something that keeps you going in this world with a desire to press on and to press in with Jesus in fellowship with him, in service, in in love of the brethren. Let this be something that motivates you to press on and press in in Jesus. Because he says, everyone has that hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. I think that's one reason that we live, every generation, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, the coming of the Lord again, right? And we can easily get into that frame of mind that thinks, man, this has been talk that's been going on for so long. People were so big on this in the 70s or back in, you know, World War II or World War I and all this talk about, oh, the coming of the Lord. And yet, here we are. But I think God has, has done that in every generation where there's that, that new kind of, of passion and desire for his return. Because what, it, what does it do? It motivates us to holy living, to pure living. I'm, I'm excited that we have this understanding of the imminent return of Christ. Listen, if there is no imminent return of Christ, if there was no rapture, if we're just waiting for the second coming of Christ, then we're going to know, well, it's not happening just yet. Because we see in the word of God that this is going to happen, this is going to happen before the return of Christ. So, well, I got time then, I guess. Maybe I'll go sow some wild oats because I know he's not coming just yet. But when I know there's the imminent return of Christ... That he could come at any moment? Oh man, I want to live ready. I want to live holy. I want to live pure. I want to live with my life being used for his honor and his glory. That's what John is getting at here. 
Everyone has this hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Because he's coming, and we're going to see him, and we're going to be made like him. John says in 1 John 3, 6, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, right there, many of you are sitting here going, Oh, great. I'm done. That just, that just leveled me right there. Uh, you mean I've got to live sinless? If I'm going to know him, if I'm going to see him, if I'm going to be in a relationship with him, whoever abides in him does not sin? Are you kidding me? How can that be? Now, I need to make sure you all know what John is meaning here. Because I'm sure many of you come through that passage and you've just, you've just been in this kind of funk, in this pit, thinking, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be good enough to go to heaven. I'm never going to be able to make it because of my sin. But listen, nobody but Christ is sinless. This isn't what John is getting at, that you have to live a sinless, perfect life. What John means here is the person who abides in Christ does not go on in a lifestyle of sin. This thought is backed up by the Greek verbs used in this verse, which are all in the present tense, which means it's not to be an ongoing action in your life. Sin is not to be what you're living for, but rather you're living for Christ. Doesn't mean that you're not going to trip up at times, stumble and fall, but that's why 1 John 1, 9 is written. If we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A true believer is going to demonstrate themselves by having that desire to live for Christ and not for sin, to repent of sin when it does pop in and cause him to stumble. He's going to give it to the Lord. But there's some people that claim, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then they just continue on in habitual sin. And they just continue on just willfully gratifying the desires of the flesh. That person, John says, shows that they don't really know God. That's the person that doesn't really... That Look at verse 9. This is my point. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So the person that says, oh, I'm a Christian, oh, I know God, and yet continues on in sin, well, contradicts what verse 9 says because if you're truly a Christian, then God's, you know put a seed in you which means you no longer want to sin and that when you do sin there's conviction that causes you to run to the lord and confession and say i need to get right with you i don't want to live this way any longer i don't want to continue in this sin i don't try to hide this from you there should be a difference in the believer and and a desire to say i no longer want to let sin rule in my life that's what john is getting at here. And that's what he's speaking of. Habitual sinful conduct indicates an absence of fellowship with Christ. So if we claim to be a Christian, but sin is our way of life, our status of children of God or as children of God can legitimately be questioned. Let's not let sin be the mark of our life. Let's let Jesus be the mark of our life. Love be evident in our life. It simply shows you that are walking in fellowship with him. So John comes back to this love of God and how it should be evident in our own lives if we are truly in him. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now again, in in chapter 4 now, John again seeks to confront these false teachers head on and confront the error being propagated by these false teachers. Look at John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So John wants his readers to know, listen, if to test the spirits, first of all, whether they're of God or not. One way that they will know in that day, whether they're of God, is what they say about Jesus. Did he come in the flesh? If they say he didn't come in the flesh, then that's not a God. That was that false teaching going around. Today, we kind of have it the other way. That people say, well, Jesus only came in the flesh. He was just a man. He wasn't truly God. And that's where people will, again, start to try to change you know, who Jesus is and, 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 and bring in you know, false reports and make him to be a created being. And we have cults and false teachings at work today that are changing the gospel. In this day, they have no problem with him, you know, um, being a, a spirit and everything, but had a problem with him coming in the flesh. So John says, this is one way you'll know. Test the spirits. See if they're in line with what God's word says. So we come now to the fifth reason that John writes this, and it's found in verse 13 of chapter 5, but let's pick it up in verse 11. It says this, these things, or sorry, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son, uh, he who has the son of God, sorry, let me start over here, okay, because I was just turning my page and going, let me get myself in the word here. First John 5, 11, all of you that have been through our 2-7 series, you know these verses off by heart. And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then he says in verse 13, and this is here that fifth reason, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So John wraps up his letter with that final reason for writing. And it's, that his readers may know that they have eternal life. See, this life doesn't come through some advanced secretive knowledge. It comes from God. It's for all those that have the Son. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and that he came to die on a cross, that he has paid the penalty for your sin and forgiven you, and, and you put your trust in him, then he says, you have eternal life. You have everything you need. It's right there. In Jesus Christ, it's not through some secret sect, through some knowledge. It's found right there in knowing Jesus and having Jesus. Have you placed your trust in him? Have you repented of your sin, turned from your way and turned to his way and acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior? Because he who has the Son has life. That's it. It's not... You see, what happens is that so many people try to, you know 
assure themselves of their salvation by what they do, right? Maybe you've been relying on additional things. Maybe it's your baptism or your church attendance or acts of service. But none of these things provide salvation. Only faith in Jesus does. The, the key question and answer is, do you have Jesus? Are you in Jesus? Which simply means you've no longer been putting your faith and trust in what you can do, in your works, in your efforts. You just simply put yourself in Jesus and said, you alone, Jesus, save. It's complete and new. So I want to be found in you. That's what it means to have Jesus, to put on Jesus. He who has the Son has life. Do you have Jesus, the Son of God, in your life today? And not just do you believe in Him, because as we saw in James a couple weeks ago, even the demons believe and they tremble. The question is, have you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation? That means that you're no longer relying on your effort, your good works, who you are as a good person, but your trust is in Jesus alone. John says, these things I've written to you who believe in the Son of God, or sorry, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the Son of God. Oh, may we continue on in Jesus. May we continue on in our faith as as 1 Peter 5 says, that we might be steadfast in the faith. Continuing on in Him. It's only in Him that we have life. It's only in Him that we enjoy this fellowship that causes our joy to be full. It's only in Him that we're forgiven of our sin. That we have life. Oh, may we continue in Jesus and in Him alone to know Him to love him, to keep growing in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time tonight in your word and, and, and just for this wonderful letter penned by this apostle that was so loved of you. He knew it, but yet, Lord, it's the same love you have for all of us. It's the same love by which caused you, Jesus, to come to this world as one of us, clothed in humanity, to be that sacrifice for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin, to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for the great love you've shown us. And now that you've you've brought us into fellowship with you, that our joy may be full, Lord, I pray that we'd be experiencing fullness of joy as we remember and are reminded tonight of what you've done for us. The fact that you're our life, Jesus And we can walk in assurance of that salvation as we just find ourselves in you. Having you as our Savior, Lord. It's so simple. It's so easy. It's not complicated. There's no hoops to jump through. And we're so glad for that. So may we continue on. Pressing on and pressing in with you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.